welcome to the Dream Season Podcast, an oral history of the 1989-90 Yukon men's basketball season, also known as the Dream Season. This is episode six, the season tips off. On Tuesday, November 21st, 1989, the Yukon Huskies boarded a plane at Bradley International Airport with a final destination of Anchorage, Alaska, to participate in the Great Alaska Shootout. The Great Alaska Shootout was one of the three early season tournaments in 1989. The Maui Invitational and the preseason NIT were the other two. Compare that to the 2022-23 season, where there were 73 such events. In 1989, college basketball teams were limited to a maximum of 27 regular season games. However, games played outside of the continental United States did not count towards that number. The Great Alaska Shootout began in 1978, and was the only preseason tournament until the Maui Invitational began in 1984. The Great Alaska Shootout was referred to as the Tournament of NCAA Champions. Four out of the previous seven NCAA champs kicked off their season in Anchorage, and another three teams reached the Final Four. The tournament would continue through the 2017 season before pulling the plug. With a growing number of preseason tournaments being held in much warmer locales, it became too difficult for organizers to recruit top teams to Alaska. The 1989 tournament field was considered wide open, as none of the participating teams were currently ranked. Michigan State and Kansas State were considered the favorites, with Auburn, Florida State, UConn, and Texas A&M in the mix, while Hawaii and the host school, Division II Alaska Anchorage, were considered long shots. Former Norwich Bulletin UConn beat reporter Pete Abraham, who now covers the Boston Red Sox for the Boston Globe, recalls the journey to the last frontier. When you go to Alaska, you get to Seattle and you think you're getting pretty close and you're nowhere near it. It's still like a long way away. And when I land, we landed at the Alaska airport, um, I was sharing a rental car with a couple of the other writers, Ken Davis and Phil Chartist. And we get the rental car and they give us a map. And there's like a circle on the map. And the lady says, well, don't go outside this circle. I said, well, what's, what's that? And she says, well, that's the wilderness. Like, we won't go get you if something happens. And I'm like, oh. I'm like, so like wilderness, wilderness. And she's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, no, no. So I said, well, where's the arena on this? Show me the arena. So she points out the arena and I go, okay, where's the Sheridan? The Sheridan's right here. I go, we're only going to the Sheridan in the arena. We ain't going anywhere else. And uh, this was all, you know, pre GPS and everything else. And I remember thinking like, why the hell didn't we go to a tournament in Hawaii? Cause it was so cold. Um, but it was great. I mean, it was actually, once you got in the arena, it was fantastic. Cause it was all good teams. And, you know, they had, a, you know, the UConn had a chance to play against teams that they normally wouldn't play. The Huskies arrived in Anchorage early on Wednesday, November 22nd. After getting some rest, Coach Calhoun ran them through not one, but two practices. One Husky who did not participate in those Wednesday workouts was Nadav Hanefeld. A few days after the game against the Soviet Union national team, Hanefeld flew back to Israel. The NCAA allowed Nadav to play for the Israeli national team in a European championship qualifying game against France on that same Wednesday. The Blue and Whites defeated France 99-93, with the Dove scoring 23 points. After the game, Hennefeld embarked on a 26-hour odyssey that would take him from Israel to Alaska via New York and Seattle. The Dove arrived in Anchorage on Thursday, less than 24 hours before tip-off against Texas A&M. Here's Hennefeld recalling the whirlwind journey from Tel Aviv to Anchorage. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's funny because when I talk about Connecticut and about this year, I remember things... As, as, as they happened, you know, yesterday or the day before yesterday. And I can't say it about everything else that happened in my career. Um, 
And, but I remember that. I remember that I was already into the season with UConn because we were already we we were in shape just before the the official season starts. And so I was in a good shape, and uh, I came back to play with the national team because uh, because I could before the season starts. And we played friends. And as soon as I finished the game, I went straight to the locker room, took a shower, and got mm-hmm. on the plane straight. Like I think it was two or three connections to to get to Alaska by myself to meet everybody before the the great Alaska shootout. And uh, yeah, it was a very long flight. The Huskies drew Texas A&M for the opening round matchup. Sports Illustrated predicted the Aggies to finish fourth in the nine-team Southwest Conference. The Aggies were dealt a blow to their roster just before leaving for Alaska. As the team was waiting to depart at the airport in Houston, Texas A&M coach Shelby Metcalf was informed that senior guard David Williams, who was a starter, was being suspended for the season for violating team rules. Junior Lynn Suber would slide into the starting lineup, but Texas A&M's thin bench was now severely depleted. Coach Metcalf, surely in a sour mood thanks to the news of Williams' suspension, was also irritated by one Jim Calhoun on the day before the game against UConn. Calhoun happened to be in Sullivan Arena recording a TV interview while the Aggies were practicing, which Metcalf did not find to his liking. Coach Calhoun was optimistic about the Huskies' chances in their opening game of the season. The win over the Soviet national team had instilled a squad with confidence. Aside from the obvious implications of starting off the season with a win, the game against Texas A&M was important for another reason— national exposure. If the Huskies could win on Friday, their next two games would be televised by ESPN on Saturday and Monday. A loss would result in games being played on three consecutive days, with no television coverage at all. WTNH Channel 8 was televising the Texas A&M game locally in Connecticut. The UConn starting lineup consisted of Chris Smith and Tate George in the backcourt, Scott Burrell and Rod Sellers at the forward spots, and Dan Srulik at center. The Huskies started the game off strong, as did the Aggies. In the first 13 minutes of action, there were seven lead changes and three ties. Texas A&M's quickness neutralized UConn's man-to-man defense, so they switched to a 1-3-1 zone. The Aggies' Lynn Suber made the Huskies pay. Suber went off, scoring 26 points in the first half while going 6-for-6 from three-point range, including a three-minute stretch where he hit four of them. When the horn sounded ending the first half, UConn trailed 51-37. The Aggies shot nearly 55% from the floor in the first half. The second half didn't go much better for the Huskies. After falling down by 16 points, they clawed back to climb within 7 at 58-51. However, the combination of Suber and fellow guard Tony Milton were too much for UConn to overcome. Suber finished with 33 points, making 7 of 8 three-pointers, and Milton had 26, including 12 trips at the foul line, where he made 9. Said Calhoun after the game, quote, I thought we could get beat, but never in my wildest dreams did I think we could get beat as bad in the perimeter as we did. What happened defensively? Better guards beat our guards. If I had an answer to why Milton kept going down the middle, I'd sell it to somebody. Maybe their guards are just that dominating. End quote. Dan Cerulek was a bright spot for the Huskies, scoring a career-high 18 points and pulling down 9 rebounds. Chris Smith led the Huskies with 19 points, and John Gwynn added 14 off the bench. UConn turned the ball over 15 times, and no other players aside from Cerulek, Smith, and Gwynn topped 8 points. The Huskies did manage 9 steals, including 4 from the Dove Hennefeld. Rod Sellers recalls how quickly things turned sour for the Huskies that night. I remember the, the very first game was uh, the Great Alaskan shootout. It was, I don't know if the first game, but one game in the Great Alaskan shootout we played. But the first game out there, we were playing Texas A&M. I'll never forget this. And coming down the court, you know, Smitty, I mean, Tate makes a pass to Smitty. Smitty scores. And I remember Tate talking. 
Welcome to the Big East, baby. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like this, yeah. Man, those guards from Texas A&M killed them. <laughs> they, we got, we got like, brutalized by them. Longtime UConn radio color analyst Wayne Norman also remembers how incredible Suber's performance was. They lost their first game to Texas A&M. They had a guy named Lynn Suber who went 7 of 8 from three-point range. I looked it up earlier today. He made 18 three-pointers the entire year. And against UConn and Texas A&M, he made seven of eight. In an interesting aside, as of the 2022-23 season, the all-time record for the highest opponent's three-point percentage against UConn is Texas A&M's 64.7% from this game. So the Huskies found themselves in the loser's bracket and would be squaring off with Auburn on Saturday, who had lost by 13 to the eventual shootout champs, Michigan State. Calhoun went with the same starting lineup as the Texas A&M game of Smith, George, Cerulek, Burrell, and Sellers. The first half of this game was the inverse of the first half against Texas A&M. UConn forced 19 turnovers in the half and held the Tigers to 30% shooting. After trailing 7-6, the Huskies went on an 18-2 run to take control of the game. In the middle of that run, Auburn had six consecutive offensive possessions where they did not attempt a field goal. The Huskies forced turnovers on all six of those possessions. Although UConn led 48-27 at halftime, the news was not all good. Murray Williams hyperextended his left leg after colliding with Auburn's Derek Dennison and had to be carried off the court. In addition, Chris Smith sprained his right ankle and left the game with a minute seven left in the first half. Neither player joined the team on the court in the second half, but Smith did return to the game with just under 10 minutes left in the game. The Huskies pushed their lead to 70-40 with 12-11 left after consecutive three-pointers from the Dove Hannafeld, Steve Peichel, and Scott Burrell. Although Auburn chipped away at the lead, making 9 of 12 three-point shots in the second half, they never came closer than 10 points, and that didn't happen until there were 22 seconds left in the game. The final score was UConn 95, Auburn 81. UConn turned the ball over 25 times, but that stat and the injuries to Smith and Williams were the only negatives. The Huskies out-rebounded the Tigers 43-31, shot 51.7% for the game, and set a school record for three-pointers made, making 10 of 18. Five Huskies scored in double figures, led by Rod Sellers' career-high 19 points and 9 rebounds. Chris Smith had 17, Hennefeld had 16 points and 6 steals, and Scott Burrell filled up the stat sheet with 13 points, 9 rebounds, 6 assists, and 6 steals. Said Calhoun after the game, quote, I wasn't ready to rip up the blueprint after last night, but I was thinking about jumping off a mountain someplace. We're an outside perimeter team, and that's the key. Tonight, the ball moved the way it's supposed to. We are learning. It was really, really important for us to get a win tonight, end quote. Unfortunately for one Husky, this game marked a low point for his entire college career. Sophomore center Mark Sir saw the court for the first time this season. It came with less than a second remaining, and the outcome had already been decided. Here's Sir recalling how he felt that night, as well as remembering his teammates who supported him. This was also Jim Calhoun, very tough, you know. He had his uh, players in his mind, how he had his game plan. And um, he put me on the court, and there were point zero. Eight seconds left on the clock, not a full second. Yeah, they had this count that they really counted into the decibels of a second. And I looked at him, and he got wild on me that I don't set up immediately and uh, go out there and run out there. Ne? So I jumped up and uh, got off my clothes. I stepped on the court. Game was over. Ne? And the whole crowd was laughing their ass off. Ne? 
the uh, how uh, the spectators in Alaska. No? They were, they yeah, it's funny for them, you know. And for me, it was really there was a point there where I really, really, um, I'm not a homesick person, and I'm uh, I think a pretty strong guy. Uh, that's when I became homesick and say, what am I doing here? And I always saw my education, the chunks of the education that I have there. But um, I said, man, I have to get out of here. You know, it was really, really uh, a down point of my uh, Yukon career. <clears throat> but um, somehow, you know, Calhoun always uh, uh, made me believe in the in the program, in the team. And my teammates, I have to say, John Gwynn and Murray Williams, unbelievable guys, really unbelievable guys. And these guys really knew how I felt and they made me stay. And they were fantastic, you know, fantastic. What excellent guys. The final matchup for the Huskies in Alaska would be against Florida State. The winner would finish in fourth place for the tournament. The Seminoles were led by New Haven native and former UConn recruit, senior guard Theron Mays. UConn would be without the services of Murray Williams after his injury in the Auburn game. UConn officials feared that he may have suffered ligament damage in his left knee, but wouldn't know more until he's examined after returning to Connecticut. The Huskies used the same starting lineup as the first two games and continued the positive momentum they had built in the Auburn game. UConn hit 10 of their first 15 shots, forced 10 first-half turnovers, and at one point in the first half had built a 19-point lead. However, the Huskies went cold just before halftime, failing to make a field goal in the final four minutes of the half. They still had a 38-26 lead heading into the break. The cold finish of the first half continued into the second half, as UConn did not make their first field goal until the 17-13 mark. A Theron Mays three-pointer brought the Seminoles to within seven points, with 15-16 remaining, but the Huskies pushed the lead back to 12, 49-37, with 12.54 left in the game. At that point, Florida State roared to life. Over the next eight minutes, the Seminoles went on a 21-6 run, eventually taking a 58-55 lead with 4.40 remaining in the game. Then the Dove took over. Hennefeld scored a layup on a pretty assist from Smith, cutting the deficit to one. He then stole a pass from Mays and took it coast-to-coast for another layup to give the Huskies the lead, 59-58. Florida State regained the lead on a 19-foot jump shot by Aubrey Boyd with 2.27 left. Boyd then fouled Hennefeld, who converted both ends of a 1-1 to give UConn the lead 61-60 with a minute 44 left in the game. But Hannafeld turned the ball over with just 54 seconds on the clock, giving the ball back to Florida State with a chance to take the lead. After an FSU timeout with 28 seconds left, the Seminoles' Irving Thomas missed a 14-foot jumper and Scott Burrell corralled the rebound. Mays fouled Burrell to stop the clock with 3 seconds left, sending Scott to the line for another 1-1. The freshman calmly sank both free throws, and the Huskies held on for a 63-60 victory and a fourth-place finish in the tournament. Calhoun was pleased after the game. Said, Coach, I think we played with character tonight, especially to have a good team make a run at us and for us to suffer the way we did. For a young team to go on the road like this, a 2-1 record is good for us. Chris Smith once again led the Huskies in scoring with 14 points and was the only Husky named to the all-tournament team. Burrell finished with 13 points and three three-pointers, while Hannafeld added 8 points, 6 boards, and 3 steals. And Duff collected 13 total steals in the tournament. Rod Sellers continued to be a presence down low with 10 points and 5 rebounds. Chris Smith recalls playing against Theron Mays and how the team felt after their experience in Alaska. And the thing about Theron Mays, man, Theron Mays is one of the great players out of New Haven, man. He was an excellent scorer. And I remember before we was getting ready to play them, uh, you know, my uncles, they pretty much familiar with all the players in uh, Connecticut. And they were like, man, Theron Mays is tough, man. That's going to be a tough one, man. He can really, really score. 
And uh, it was it was just a treat playing against them, Connecticut guy, Bridgeport, uh, New Haven, and uh, that, that worked out well. But Alaska gave us that confidence uh, that we needed. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think guys started to really, really believe. And we started to play defense, you know. We started really to believe in our defense. We, we understood that we had a lot of length. I mean, Tate George was 6'5". I'm 6'2", 6'3", you know, Scott, everybody's kind of long and lanky. And uh, we started to learn ourselves and learn how to play. And uh, that Alaska trip really helped us out. Here's UConn's longtime director of athletic communications, Tim Tolikin, on the importance of finishing the tournament on a high note. You know, back then, the Great Alaskan shootout was still pretty important. And, you know, you got you got coverage and stuff like that. Uh, but uh but it it's still because we got you know whenever you travel on the road and i traveled obviously 32 years six with dom and all 26 with jim when you travel on the road and go to a tournament winning is always important losing the first game but winning the next two when you have to fly from alaska back to connecticut boy as i remember it that took a lot of the sting out of the loss to Texas A&M because you had to be on a plane with Jim Calhoun all that way and the players and the coaches and the support staff. And had we not won those next two games, uh, uh, it would have not been anywhere near, you know, as, as, as enjoyable. Uh, and it ended up being not bad because we, we won a couple. UConn radio play-by-play announcer Bob Usler recalls the mood of UConn fans in Connecticut after returning from Alaska. Here's what I remember about Alaska. The only televised game was the first game. That was Texas A&M. And they lost that game. And they didn't play particularly well in that game. It was okay, but they lost. And I remember coming back to Connecticut after having done the Great Alaska shootout, and then broadcasting the wins over Auburn and Florida State. And they played really well after that first game in Alaska. But we come back from Alaska, and I realized the only game that people really were talking about was the loss. And I I can't tell you how many fans I spoke to and said, no, 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 they're good. That was – they did – they – Played really well in Alaska, but I'm like, come on, you're listening to the broadcast? <laughs> we were talking them up after those wins against uh, Auburn and Florida State. The Huskies returned from Alaska with a lot of positives to build on, although there were also plenty of negatives. Poor free throw shooting, 64.8% in the final two games, and subpar rebounding. They were out-rebounded by eight for the tournament, as well as the injury to Murray Williams were all reasons for concern. But Calhoun chose to focus on the positives. They included resilience. The comeback against Florida State after being up by 19 points really impressed Calhoun. I'd rather win games on courage and heart, said Calhoun. It's a real good sign to come back. That's something you usually need time to work on. Consistency. The Huskies used the same starting lineup for all three games, and John Gwynn had emerged as the first player off the bench. Said Gwynn, quote, I'd rather start, but if this helps the team, that's what I'll do. As long as we win, that's what matters. I never got an NIT ring. I want an NCAA ring. End quote. Four Huskies were averaging double figures in scoring, Smith, Burrell, Gwynn, and Sellers, and the two freshmen playing substantial minutes, Burrell and Hennefeld, were playing like veterans. Here's Coach Calhoun on how we felt after the shootout. 
But one of the things that people don't remember is we had a kid in the dumb NFL who was in Israel at the time playing in a, a game for the Israeli national team. And, and it's amazing. He kind of jumped off a plane three quarters away around the world and uh, was a man amongst boys just in the way he played, what kind of glue he was. We kind of got a look in those last couple of games of who he could be, not necessarily who he quite were yet. And uh, that was the thing that kept us going. We, we, showed, we showed determination. We looked a little bit more mature than the year before. So, yeah, it, it, we left there feeling pretty good about ourselves. Next up, the Huskies would host Yale at the Fieldhouse on Thursday, November 30th. Earlier that afternoon, Murray Williams underwent an MRI on his injured left knee. The results revealed a partial tear of his ACL. The options for Murray were either to have surgery to repair the tear or to rehabilitate and see if the stability improved. Either way, Calhoun wasn't expecting him back in action until January at the earliest. There was far less drama on the court against the Bulldogs. UConn jumped out to a 33-21 halftime lead, but Calhoun wasn't pleased with the way they finished the half. Looking for a spark, he inserted John Gwynn into the lineup coming out of the break. Gwynn stayed on the court for the next eight and a half minutes as the Huskies started the half with a 15-2 run. After the run to start the half, Yale never came closer than 17 points. The final score was UConn 76, Yale 50, earning Jim Calhoun his 300th career coaching victory. The freshman tandem of Scott Burrell and the Dove Hennefeld continued to impress, as each player scored 15 points. John Gwynn also added 15 off the bench. Chris Smith uncharacteristically struggled, managing only 7 points on 3 of 11 shooting. As a team, UConn out-rebounded Yale 39-27 and shot 51% from the field. Still, Calhoun was not happy. Quote, We had no rhythm offensively or defensively. I didn't feel we were really sharp, but we're 3-1. Three, three weeks from now, nobody's going to ask how we played on November 30th. End quote. UConn's next opponent was Howard University on Saturday, December 2nd. This would be the first meeting between the two schools. One key Husky who has struggled after the first four games was Tate George. George, while averaging five assists per game, had only managed 29 points on the season. It didn't take Tate long against Howard to break out. George scored 11 of his 15 points in the first half as the Huskies went on a 19-2 run early in the half to stake a 42-24 halftime lead. After a brief power outage that left the lights in the old fieldhouse dimmer than normal, UConn went on a 21-7 run to push the lead to 63-31 with 8.43 left in the game. Every member of the Huskies managed to see action, with the exception of freshman Marte Smith, who Calhoun was considering redshirting. Every player who played scored, except for both Peichel brothers. Dan Cerulek recorded a career-high 15 rebounds, John Gwynn added 13 points, and Rod Sellers chipped in with 11. Unlike the Yale game, Calhoun was pleased after this one. Quote, Normally, the kids don't know what to expect when I go into the locker room after the game. I think tonight they were surprised at how happy I was. I really thought we played well. End quote. After two weaker opponents, the road would soon become more difficult for the Huskies. Coming up on the next episode of the Dream Season podcast, the month of December brings a Yukon road game at the Hartford Civic Center, as well as their first Big East matchup of the season. The Dream Season podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Matt Edwards. Written sources for this episode are the Hartford Current Archives and Google News Archives. You can connect with the show via Twitter and Instagram at Dream Season Pod. If you have any memories to share about anything I just mentioned, want to correct me on something I screwed up, or just have general feedback to give, send me an email at dreamseasonpod at gmail.com. 
or call and leave me a message at 903-884-8990. After I'm done with the regular episodes of the show, I'd love to have an episode that consists entirely of your memories of the dream season. Either leave a message at the above number or email me with your recollections, along with your name and location, and I'll include them in that episode. I really appreciate all the positive feedback I've received so far. As always, thank you so much for listening.